The Press Box is here to catch you up on the latest media stories. Hosted by Brian Curtis and David Shoemaker, these guys have the insight on the biggest stories you care about. Check out The Press Box on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Better presentations are possible. You just need Canva presentations. With it, you can easily and quickly make stunning slides. All you have to do is start with one of Canva's professionally designed templates or generate slides with AI. Then add graphs, charts, and more from the massive media library, and you're done. It's that simple. I always think that the best use of AI in work is it does the thing that you naturally aren't very good at. And personally, one thing I'm really terrible at is making visual presentations. I'm not very visually inclined. I'm not good at picking out you know, photographs or abstract conceptual images to go with ideas I'm trying to put forward in presentations. So it's kind of nice to have an AI-powered tool that can help me make these presentations in literally seconds. Nail your next work presentation with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello, and welcome back to Plain English. Uh, In a good year, January's can be kind of rough. You are a little tired. You're not fully motivated to get back to work, wherever that is. Your post-holiday body mass is 20% cake, ice cream, and apple brandy cocktails. Uh, Oh, no, wait, that's just me. But it is especially rough in 2022 with Omicron. Uh, I did a pod with Bill Simmons last week about Omicron. I'm not going to recapitulate the whole thing here. We will have an Omicron episode next week. The upshot for now is that, yes, it's milder, especially for the vaccinated and boosted. So get your vaccines and booster shots. That's the good news. It's also everywhere, absolutely everywhere, which is not good news. So many people are infected that schools are canceled. Hospital staff is strung out. Sports are a mess. The NBA is basically handing out 10-day contracts to anybody who's played 2K on PlayStation in the last decade. The point is, things are total cluster shit. And this is going to be, even if you are optimistic about the trajectory of this virus in the next month, which I am, this is going to be a very, very rough month. So I thought for the first episode of 2022, Let's zag. Let's zag a bit. Plain English has mostly been a news podcast analyzing what just happened. What about inverting the telescope and taking the long view? What about a pod about the most interesting and most exciting and most important tech and science breakthroughs of the 2020s? So looking back a little bit over the last few decades, we are coming out of a long period that is sometimes called the Great Stagnation. There's a a couple measures of productivity growth that are down, a couple measures of technological growth that are down. For some reason, we don't seem to be making progress toward human welfare as fast as we used to be. But I think the great stagnation might be over. I think we could be on the cusp 
of a roaring 20s, from transportation tech to biotech to energy tech to nanotech, I think the next 10 years could be one of the most exciting decades for scientific discovery ever. So I want to do a podcast on all the coolest stuff that is coming down the pike with someone who has the most masterful understanding of that whole frontier. And that man is Eli Dorado. He is an economist, a writer, and a researcher, and his command of our science and tech frontier is just beyond compare. He is, for the purposes of this episode, our guide to the universe of the future. Now, uh, this episode is a beast. Uh, There is a lot of technical detail that I will do my best to make plain, but I think it's also a feast. If you dream of jetting to Europe or Singapore for dinner at twice the speed of sound, lucky for you, we discuss the future of supersonic travel. If you dream of interstellar human civilization, lucky for you, we discuss the future of space innovation. If you dream more earthbound dreams of using mRNA technology, the tech in our COVID vaccines, to cure certain kinds of cancer, we discuss the future of cancer vaccines. And if you believe, as I do, that maybe the most important technology on this planet is our ability to suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and reverse climate change, we discuss the frontier of carbon removal technology which could at scale basically vacuum the skies for carbon. If you can't tell, I am an optimist at heart about technology. I think a lot of tech has screwed us over because technology is people and a lot of people are bad. But I also think technology is our ticket to abundance. Abundance of clean energy, abundance of health, and abundance of wealth. And with some determination and some luck, I think the projects we discuss in this episode have a chance of moving us from science fiction to science fact, from a world of scarcity to a better world of abundance. I'm Derek Thompson. This is Plain English. Eli, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Great to be on, Derek. Happy to see you. Great to see you too. So I brought you on to talk about all the coolest stuff we're inventing in science and technology. But before we feast on that buffet of invention, I wanted to set the table a bit. We are in an era, or maybe just coming out of an era, that some people call the Great Stagnation, a period where by some measures progress has slowed down. Eli, what is the Great Stagnation? And how do we know we're in it? Yeah, so the, so as you said, the Great Stagnation is this period where it seems that that output is not growing as fast. So so economists usually think about output in terms of GDP, in terms of like what the economy produces. Um, you know, the inputs to that are you can think of them as labor, capital, and everything else, right? And so uh, so we we know we can produce more output if we all work longer hours, if we apply more labor, right? We, we know that we can produce more output if we don't consume as much, we save more, we apply more capital to production, right? Those are kind of ways that uh, are not, not fun ways of producing more output, right? They, like we work harder, we don't get to consume as much. Those aren't good. Um, 
sometimes sometimes they're necessary, but uh, but but they're not the the, the pure joy of of, of uh, you know more output. The the better way to increase output is uh, by leveraging the everything else factor, right? And the everything else factor is is what's called total factor productivity. You know, how how do we combine labor and capital? What are the different ways that we as a society combine labor and capital to produce output, right? And so if you look at just the, sort of this, this resi residual term, total factor productivity, and, and its trend across time, you see a, a sharp slowdown uh, starting in the early 1970s, you know, a little pickup in the mid-90s for a, sort of a, a brief decade-long sort of spasm of 2% growth again. And then uh, since about 2005, it's really just fallen off a cliff and we're growing you know, total factor productivity at about 0.3% per year. So sort of making it sort of like a kind of a zero-sum economy in a way, right? And rounding down to zero anyway. Right. So total factor productivity, TFP, is basically a measure for efficiency. Like in 1800, if you spent 100 hours out in the fields, you might produce, you know, 10 ears of corn. But today, if you spend 100 hours out in the fields with tractors and all this equipment that we have, you might produce 1,000 ears of corn. What's the difference? It's not how much you work. It's efficiency, technology, knowledge. And the way we measure that growth of tech and knowledge is TFP. And what you're saying is that for most of the last 200 years, TFP has just gone up and up and up. But in the last generation or so, economists have seen that it's slowing down in a really visible way. That is our progress problem in a nutshell. But if the great stagnation is real, if progress and growth are slowing down today, why is it happening? And this gives me a great excuse to share my favorite period of American history, which is the last 25 years of the 1800s, a period of, you know, TFP was going up, up, up like crazy. It seemed like we invented everything all at once. I mean, last 25 years of the 1800s, all the following things were invented. The Edison light bulb, cars, sneakers, aspirin, skyscrapers, bicycles, the cardboard box, Coca-Cola, Kellogg's cornflakes, the American hamburger, the Kodak camera, recorded music, the first machine for capturing motion pictures, basketball, and volleyball. Like, the late 19th century was an invention bonanza. And there are some economists, like uh, Robert Gordon at Northwestern, who are very famous for saying, look, if it seems like we're in a great stagnation now, that's because we picked all this low-hanging fruit in the late 19th century. You can't reinvent the cardboard box. You can't reinvent the light bulb. We solved all these easy problems, and now we're stuck with all these hard problems. So, Eli, how do you feel about this explanation for the great stagnation, the we picked all the low-hanging fruit explanation. Like, so I, I think of this as Robert Gordon is a great historian and he's not a great futurist, right? So so he's so I, I totally buy the idea of like there was a a um a great flourishing. As you as you say, the late 1900s, it sort of picked up and 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 actually really hit the economy in about 1920 and sort of lasted about 50 years. I totally buy like that part of Gordon's story. Like the question is like, is it really that we don't have any more inventions to be had right now, or is it something about us that is causing us to slow down? Right, and so I'm much more convinced by uh, by Tyler Cowen's argument and the complacent class. That there's is this something is the uh, this is the George Mason economist Tyler Cowen, very famous economist and writer, and he was also, I believe, your PhD. Yes, uh, mentor, he was my right? he was okay, my PhD great. advisor. Yes, um, and so uh, so so his argument is that there's it's, it's actually something about us, right? It's something about our society that has changed, 
uh, you know, sort of beginning in in the 1970s and 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 maybe compounding since the 1970s, that um, that has made it uh, harder to 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 do stuff uh, to to actually like make progress in the real world, right? And I think that that makes sense. Also, I mean, if you think about the one area where we have had progress, it's computing uh, by far, right? And computing like is a great tool for making progress in a whole bunch of other areas. So like, even if, even if the problems themselves are getting harder, like we have better tools than ever before. So we should be making progress like exponentially faster because our computing tools are so much better. So, so I don't, I don't. um, And then if you, then if you survey sort of the landscape of, of possible inventions coming in the future, like that's, that to me is like the clincher, right? There, There actually is a lot of stuff that is on the horizon that we could get to. And and that's what um, sort of excites me and motivates me to to figure out how do we how do we end this stagnation period? Right, right. I'm, I'm sure there's some people listening to this podcast who are like, "Wait, what are you talking about? Great stagnation." I am listening to essentially mobile radio on a device, a smartphone that was basically invented, at least as this sort of class of product in 2007 with the iPhone. I'm doing it with internet, which didn't really exist 30 years ago, walking around with my pocket full of apps, which didn't exist maybe five or 10 years ago. Um, What are you talking about decline of progress? This, to a certain extent, is I think what, what you're talking about. Even as we have been sensationally successful at innovating in bits, innovating in communications technology, we have not been nearly as successful. We've been actually falling backward when it comes with innovating in atoms, innovating in the physical world. You look at the early 20th century, we built the Empire State Building in 410 days. It took 2,500 days to build the new Freedom Tower. You look at subways. We built the first 28 stations of the New York subway in less than five years at the end of the 1800s. In the 21st century, It took almost 20 years to build three stations along the 2nd Avenue subway. So it's not just that we're getting worse at building new physical world inventions. We're getting worse at building using old technology, like metal and dirt. Just quickly, before we, we, you know, uh, show off the full buffet of incredible, exciting stuff that you think is coming forward, just maybe just put a pin in this and explain to me why you think this is happening, why you think physical world innovation seems to have slowed down so much. You know, I, I don't think, I think it's, I think it's cultural. I think it's uh, overdetermined. Like there's, there's more than one reason that's sufficient to make, to make it happen. Um, it, it's, it's just this confluence of um, changes in material wealth. So we're, so we're just so comfortable um, now that we're not like hustling enough, um, we have uh, different priorities. Uh, we're 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 not trying to drive material progress forward. Um, I think that there's a there's you know there's there's nimbyism. There's uh, there's sort of like what I call like the ugly parts of the environmental movement. Although I support uh, you know clean stuff, um, uh, I think that there you know there's um, and I think there's also like this era of like mass media has sort of like poured and, and, and with the internet especially like pouring gasoline on the fire of the culture war right so so like we, we no longer um we no longer sort of fight for status among like our lo- local neighborhood and then like that's pr- kind of like a small culture war and then like we for the re- for the rest of our efforts like we pour them all into material progress right instead it's like this this national or even global uh status war that we're we're sort of like absorbed in and and not really thinking very much about uh, cultural progress or, or economic progress. 
Yeah, I my my, my summary of of this uh, viewpoint is that uh, this is an age of venting rather than inventing. That we yes. have taken <laughs> a lot of our mental energy, which is scarce, and we have funneled it into screens where we spend a lot of time venting and pointing out all the things that are wrong with the world, and we don't spend enough of our scarce and finite mental energy thinking about how to build in the physical world and solve physical world problems. So let's use that venting versus inventing inflection point and move into the inventing uh, stage of this interview and talk about some of the glimmers of hope and excitement that you see on the horizon. Um, so one summary of the great stagnation is uh, from the famous entrepreneur investor, Peter Thiel, who said, we were promised flying cars, but all we got is 140 characters. Um, so starting right there with flying, uh, we used to have a plane that could travel around twice the speed of sound, more than a thousand miles per hour. It was called the Concorde. Now we don't have the Concorde. But when it comes to airplane speeds, in a way, uh, what, what we're seeing is like worse than stagnation. It's like we're moving backward. Um, all right, so what happened to the Concorde and why are you so interested in the next generation of supersonic travel? Yeah, so this is an area that's uh, near and dear to my heart. Um, so what happened with the Concorde is that the market never got big enough for it to operate sustainably um, or, and, and profitably. So only 14 Concords ever saw service. They were, you know, it was an air, aircraft program that was not really designed for economic reasons. It was designed for sort of national greatness reasons. Uh, it, was a, it was actually uh, forged from a treaty that was signed between the, the, the French and the British. And, um, and, and with only 14 airliners in service, right, that means maintenance costs are high because like spare parts, uh, can't be mass produced, right? It means um, that you you that means that you have to ha charge high ticket prices. And so what that that what ended up happening for Concorde is that it would fly half empty a lot of the time, and it would be like uh, you know in today's dollars something like fifteen thousand dollars round trip uh, across across the uh, Atlantic. And so it was and and, and it was just it, it the market just wasn't big enough in terms of people who would pay that money. And I think the other part of the story is. You know the technologies just weren't quite there. It was quite literally like ahead of its time. It was totally ahead of its time. So we had the Concorde in the second half of the 20th century. It was cool. It was very expensive. It was totally impractical. It was, I think you've made this point on other podcasts, made of aluminum, which gets a little soggy when it travels at high speed. So the plane literally stretched and contracted over the course of the journey, like you were flying across the Atlantic in a little uh, accordion. But now we have a new dawn for supersonic travel. There are a lot of companies working on airplanes that can go several times faster than the speed of sound. You worked at one of these companies called Boom. Tell me what Boom is up to. Okay, so so well, so Boom is flying uh, a prototype airplane uh, this year. So in a matter of months, uh, they're flying their demonstrator aircraft. So that I think um, you know be a, a, kind of a low mock airplane, but but um, but still very exciting. So that's very exciting progress. Um, and I think they're going to be entering service with a uh, Mach one point seven airliner. Uh, you know, the plan is by uh, twenty twenty nine. So, so that's so, wow. so that's uh, that's what they're going for. There's a company, and so that is that is what that's that's like one thousand two hundred, one thousand three hundred miles per hour. Uh, one point seven is a little little less than that, but but still, I mean, okay. like a thousand miles an hour, maybe faster. 
Yeah, something and, like and that. How, and how fast is the typical sort of, you know, 777 fly uh, today? It'll fly around 550 is the, the airspeed, okay. cruise airspeed. So almost twice as fast as the typical 777, yeah, about, 787 about, about, today. Yeah, about twice as fast, maybe, maybe a little less. Um, and, uh, and so there's a company called Hermius that is uh, developing a Mach 5 airliner. And so they are basically, you know, that that's the point at which you call it hypersonic. So there's a lot of defense interest in that capability. Um, and so they're they're really pursuing it as sort of like a dual use technology. The military can use uh, the sort of, you know, hypersonic engines for for various uh, drone programs and stuff. And then um, and then they can also translate that to an to an airliner. And so that would get you, you know, across the Atlantic in like 90 minutes. So uh, New York to London in 90 minutes. That's unbelievable. I, you said Mach 5. Mach 5 is 3,800 miles per hour. That, that, that is so fast, it makes me a little bit afraid. That is six times faster than a 777 typically flies at top speed. Uh, but, it, but it's out there. You mentioned a startup that's, that's working on a Mach 5 airliner. Boeing has announced an aircraft concept, just a concept, but uh, they've announced it that would travel also at Mach 5. I mean, this is a speed at which you would cross the Pacific in, in a matter of, of hours, two, three hours. Uh, Eli, what is the limit here? How fast can we go? Yeah, I think there are limits to, if you're trying to build like truly a plane, the way the planes operate today, like out of you know, out of normal airports, say, with the runways and, and all that stuff, there's kind of a limit, an economic limit, um, because you have to spend enough time at the sort of subsonic, uh, in the subsonic regime, like near the airport, right? You have to, you know, there, there's only so much gain you get from going a little bit faster, right? So, so Mach 5 is kind of the limit if you're, if you're limiting yourself to like the plane model, Right. If you're, if you're, if you are willing to do like more of a rocket launch model, right? Then, then we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there. <laughs> we're, can, we're gonna get to the rocket launch model. Yeah. Um. I. But before we move on to to, to rockets in space, um. Uh. You know, in in keeping with the Peter Thiel quote, I do want to make sure that I ask you about flying cars. What is the outlook for flying cars? In the 2020, I mean, is this is this going to be like the dip and dots of transportation? Like it's always the ice cream of the future. It's never the ice cream of the present. Or can we conceivably see flying cars become a part of the urban or suburban landscape in the next decade or two? Yeah. So I think there's a ton of money money going into the space. So I think something will come out of it, but it might not be like the flying car the way people are thinking about it. Right. The original vision of like the Uber Elevate white paper was something like you could take across town through the air that would help you to avoid traffic. And I don't, I think we're still like a long way away from that. So it's probably not a replacement for like your daily car ride. But I think that these vehicles, they're, they're coming, they're, they're, they're electric, vertical takeoff and landing uh, aircraft. And, and you should really think about them as like a new kind of regional aircraft. So think about a trip that is like 200 miles, like takes you like three, four hours to drive it. So I, I live in the DC area every summer. I go up to the Jersey shore for a couple times with my family, right? What if instead of like packing four people into a car and driving for four hours, you could summon one of these personal aircraft to take you like very close to your destination. So maybe now it takes you like an hour to get there, right? And the view is stunning, right? Because you're, you're flying, which is always great. Um, and you can relax because there's no stop and go and no traffic. And there's no rest stops along the way. So it's just like a better experience. Um, and so it's, I, think it's, I think of it as like, you know, bringing the experience of a private jet to like many more people, as long as your range is only a few hundred miles. I was going to say, it, it sounds like to the extent we're going to get flying cars the next decade, it's not going to be something that really competes with the job of an urban or even suburban 
car. It sounds like it's going to compete a little bit more with a helicopter or private jet. That's interesting. So a couple of years ago, 2019, 2018, Uber, Boeing, UPS, all these companies announced these plans to develop flying cars. And I wrote an article uh, about these plans and talked to some experts about them. And they said there are at least three fundamental flaws with most flying car plans. Number one, uh, people aren't good drivers on earth. So why would we trust them in the sky? Cities aren't gonna be pumped about ordinary citizens flying thousand pound machines around tall buildings filled with people. Number two, the alternative, which is to have robots drive the flying car, is also hard. We can't solve autonomy here on earth. How are we gonna solve it in the sky faster than we solve it on the road? And then third, there still are some tech issues with making these machines viable and affordable. So Eli, what do you see as the biggest remaining challenges to making flying cars a reality? Yeah, I think the economics are still pretty tough from, you know, like like for one, like autonomy is really hard from a regulatory perspective. It's actually easier in planes than it is in cars. But, but to really make it work, to really make the economics of this work, um, you know, you you kind of need to get the pilot out of <laughs> out of the aircraft, um, and 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 not have to pay for for that. And th- there's a lot of opposition to that, and and a lot of challenges. Uh, you know, batteries is another thing. Like, how do we get the battery uh, efficiency up? And the specifically like the 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 specific energy, right? The the amount of energy per weight, right? That, like, is like such a huge role. And then I think the third challenge is like all the operating support that you need for for flying these vehicles. Like you need a bunch of new infrastructure. If you want this to be like in your city and taking you around your city, you need you need like landing pads, charging stations, maintenance capabilities, essentially mini airports. And then you th- and unlike today's airports which are all built out in the boonies, um you know, you've got to put them in these are every downtown. But you got to, right. you got to put like, them in this is why locations. it's like a helicopter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so and and so with nimbyism being what it is, like that could be really tough, right? So so I think there's a lot of challenges to making it work as like your your daily car but i think like it would be shocking to me if like with all the money going in if we didn't get like really great regional aircraft coming out of this so uh moving from zooming around the world to zooming around space um let's talk about spacex and the new space race um first i want you to make the argument for space because i i feel like i have a lot of close smart friends who just do not care about space and are rather militantly anti-space innovation. And so I want to sort of adopt the position of anti-space dude here and 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 put their argument to you, okay? okay. Um, poverty, hunger, climate change. We have so many problems right here on Earth. Why are we, and why especially, are the world's richest people spending one millisecond of their time and attention worrying about space. Yeah, so I, I don't think that space, like the resources going into space, first of all, they're tiny, right? Like in the grand in the grand perspective, like NASA's budget is like 20 billion a year, which is like a rounding error for for the US federal budget. Right. So it's it is it is minuscule the amount of resources. And then the other the other point I would make is um this is a R&D heavy sector, right? And like so much um, has come out, uh, you know, NASA has this whole like webpage. You can go to like spinoffs.nasa.gov or something like that. I think something like that is the URL. And the, all, all of the technologies that came um, out of the, the, you know, the Apollo program and, 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 and beyond. Um, so a lot of R&D gets done that, that provides value. And then space itself 
provides value, right? So, so think about um, what is the economic value today of GPS, right? It's like massive, right? It, it is like it probably exceeds like the entire value of like what we've put into into space, right? The, the ability to do positioning uh, anywhere on the planet, like communications, is like a multi-trillion-dollar industry, and and um, and and satellites, you know, play a, a key role. In 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 communications, you know, I think I think in the longer run, like I I just think like there being a frontier is important for for humanity. So like you know, compl- talk about complacency, right? Like the lack of a frontier, I think, is potentially an ingredient in complacency, right? And so so having you know having some having a, a human colony on Mars where they're not going to be complacent, they're going to be struggling to survive. Like that's actually good for. Um, for the amount of invention that we can do. Yeah, that's a very good start. I, I think of space as one of the great bank shots in human innovation history. Like, if you don't care about Mars, you don't care about the moon, you're bored by Hubble's pictures of stars, just look at the NASA spin-off publication list. Look at what we accidentally invented on our way to space. Yes, it's it's PR. This is this is a little bit PR. They're exaggerating the degree to which they're responsible for inventing this stuff, but they clearly pushed a lot of it forward. Okay. This is a list that includes LASIK technology cochlear implants, artificial limbs, 3D food printing, aircraft anti-icing systems, temper foam for your mattress, enriched baby food. Like, you are sleeping on space technology. You are eating space technology. You are feeding space technology to your baby. You are having space technology pushed inside of your face if your eyes and ears can't do the thing that they're supposed to do. The amount of work that has to be overcome to get a human being into space is so large that we can't help but learning a ton of stuff along the way. Um, Another argument, and this goes with what SpaceX is doing, is we derive a lot of benefit from space in terms of Starlink, the satellite program that Elon Musk has, which beams down internet that we uh, can get from from space. If we build space manufacturing, which would be absolutely fantastic, we can make a lot of stuff that we can't necessarily produce in, in high gravity environments on Earth. Anyway, I could go on. I think this stuff is very interesting. Tell me, Eli, what do you think Elon Musk wants? What is his grand strategy? Yeah, so Elon is 100% focused on making humanity a multi-planetary species. You know, to, to basically to solve, you know, the problem of, you know, if there's a disastrous, catastrophic comet strike or asteroid strike on Earth, you know, we don't, humanity, the light of humanity is not extinguished from the universe, that, that we, we have a backup plan uh, on Mars or on maybe on other bodies, and we can sort of re- reboot human civilization. Um, and and it's striking to me like how much everything Elon does is in furtherance of that vision. I think like insofar as um, you can even think of Tesla as a bet on on Mars, right? Like well, what will we need to have vehicles on Mars? Well, probably electric drivetrains, right? We'll need solar panels, right? Uh, boring company, right? We're going to need underground habitats. Uh, you know, like, so, so I think almost everything Elon does is, is really, um, geared towards this, uh, this vision of Mars colonization. And what is the most important thing that SpaceX is building right now to achieve that vision? Without a doubt, it's, it's Starship, right? That's their, it's their, um, super heavy lift, uh, rocket, biggest rocket, uh, ever as, you know, rivaling, uh, Saturn V, which launched the Apollo missions. Um, they're, they're building it right now, or, you know, have been building, uh, prototypes in, uh, the, the tip of the Southern tip of Texas. 
Um, and they are ready to go to orbit as soon as uh, FAA approves their uh, environmental assessment. So they're just waiting, waiting on a, a, an FAA review, and then they're going to uh, do the first orbital flight. Um, it, so this is a vehicle. So Falcon 9 was already revolutionary for the, for the launch industry. It dropped costs by like a factor of four relative to like the other like sort of medium left American rockets, right? Starship, like they're targeting like another like two orders of magnitude in sort of cost reduction in terms of like price per kilogram to get cargo to orbit. And, and so it's just, so to go from like a four X cost reduction to like another hundred X cost reduction, it is just massive. So how are they doing it? They're, they're, instead of just the booster stage being reusable and landing, like they're making the whole vehicle, right? The booster stage plus the, the vehicle itself is going to be uh, reusable. They're using like dirt cheap materials. They're using stainless steel instead of um, like advanced aerospace composites and stuff like that. So that, so they're, they're planning to turn these things out at like 5 million a pop for the vehicle. Right. And just, just to give us some comparison, how, how cheap is that compared to a typical rocket well, like from a typical, the 1990s, 2000s? Well, the typical rocket, you know, would be like um, $150 million and you fly it once and throw it in the ocean. So this is 30 times cheaper. Uh, like something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a lot, lot cheaper. Um, then, and why, do, why does cheapness matter? Like when we're trying to go to space, I think this is actually a really important part when it comes to space innovation. What's, why is price so important? So the ultimate, like the, the cost of like getting stuff to space, it, it affects what you send, right? So it affects, it affects how you engineer the payload. Uh, that's like, I think the, the biggest point. So, so one, it, it, it directly, like if you think just again about the gravity model of trade, um, it directly affects how much you send. So you're going to send more if if it's if it's cheaper. But then it cha- also changes what you send because when it's when you're paying you know a uh, hundred million plus for a launch on on sort of like the pre SpaceX rockets, um, you need to over engineer your your the thing that you're launching the satellite the spacecraft whatever it is you need to over engineer it so that you know it's not going to fail, right? So you spend whatever it takes. To make sure it's not going to fail, you're going to you're going to buy the most the fanciest hardware. You're going to make hire engineers to triple check, quadruple check, quintuple check uh, the the work. Right when when launch comes down by you know a couple orders of magnitude, um, you buy your hardware at Home Depot, right? And you, and you you assemble it and then you 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 send it up. And if it doesn't work, you send another one. Right to build on that, if we can bring down the cost of sending stuff up to space by a factor of thirty. That means that all else equal, we can increase by a factor of 30 the amount of stuff that we send into space to build cool shit. Like it's a force multiplier and our ability to build satellites and telescopes and space stations, underground cities on Mars, reflector shields on Venus, like you name it. When costs come down, our potential to become a space-oriented civilization goes up. This episode is brought to you by Canva. Here's a writing tip for work. Don't just write. Use Canva Docs. It has Magic Write, a built-in AI text generator powered by OpenAI to help you create almost anything, from meeting agendas to job descriptions, marketing plans, proposals, and more. Canva is here to help you get it done. If you've used AI for work, for writing, for coming up with bullet points for 
a podcast, a meeting, you know that AI works best when you're specific, when you tell AI exactly what you want and then tell it again and again, help me do this, help me talk like this kind of person. The more specific you can be, the more helpful you'll find it is. Generate your draft fast with Canva Docs at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibly listed at indeed.com slash plain. Just go to indeed.com slash plain right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. So, okay, descending from space to earth, let's talk about biotech. 2020, 2021 were clearly a coming out party for mRNA, messenger RNA technology. If you got a vaccine shot from Pfizer, Moderna, you got a shot of mRNA technology. And mRNA, as you see it, has a big future beyond the coronavirus vaccines. Tell me a little bit about why you're so excited when it comes to mRNA tech. Yeah, so mRNA is the language that the cell uses as instructions for making proteins, right? So so now that we've figured- And actually quickly, Eli, what are proteins? Because honestly, like, so, like sometimes, like I, I think a lot of people and myself included before I had to sort of become a COVID reporter thought yeah. proteins were like, you know, something you put in shakes and something that you right. find in like, you know, ribeye and yeah. uh, New York strip. What, what do proteins do? Why are they important yeah. here? So proteins are not just a macronutrient, right? They are, I don't, I don't know, like the one thing I remember from like ninth grade biology, I don't know if you, you had this experience, um, is that amino acids are the building blocks of life. Right, I had to like remember <laughs> yes. that, right? And so, no, amino acids are the building blocks of proteins, right? And proteins are basically what life is all about, right? Like, like so, so all of the processes that that make you a living person are carried out by proteins. Uh, in contrast with like an inert like steak that you're eating because it's protein, right? Uh, like these proteins are very dynamic. They move around. They have mechanisms. Um, and it's all uh, encoded in this sort of, it becomes like this like messy like 3D thing and the, the structure of the of the protein determines its function and and that structure is all just determined by the sequence it's a linear chain of amino acids that all like kind of folds up into this 3D structure it's very complicated to predict what it will be but um, but that that is what a protein is Right. So proteins are these little microscopic machines that basically do everything in our bodies. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Now backtrack, um, mRNA, synthetic mRNA. Why, what does this technology do and why is it important? So, so this is what the, the, there's a part of the cell called the ribosome. And what the ribosome does is it reads mRNA and spits out a protein. 
that, that's, that's encoded for by the mRNA. So it links together to the amino acids and that's, that's your protein. And so what we figured out with, with these vaccines is we figured out how to deliver custom mRNA to our cells, right? So, so that we can make the cell make any protein we want. In the case of the vaccines, we decided we wanted to make the, the human cell produce a virus protein. It's actually a slightly modified from the virus, virus protein. So it's actually a completely unique protein um, uh, in, in a way. Um, and, and, and so we can make, we can make it make any protein we want. Right. And so, so I think of this and MRNA technology has long been thought of as, as a way to potentially address cancer. So we could train just like we trained the immune system to beat up on coronavirus spike proteins. We could, um, train the immune system to beat up on markers of cancer. So, so if you, if you have a protein that's expressed, um, in a cancer cell, but not in a healthy cell, we could train your body to attack the cells that have the, the, uh, the bad protein. Right. And so, so if we train your immune system to attack that, like your cancer could go away. Right. It would right. be, be the founders of BioNTech. Yeah. The founders of BioNTech who made what we now call the, the Pfizer vaccine. They said, you know, we think of our technology as essentially holding up a wanted poster to the immune system, right? So we yeah. have a wanted poster of the coronavirus, of the spike protein on the coronavirus. We say, this is the bad guy. And then uh, we teach our immune system to recognize the criminal in the wanted poster so that when he tries to walk into the saloon, our bodies, we beat him up at the doorway or something. Yeah. And their point is, it's not just coronaviruses that can have their picture put on the wanted poster. We can put all sorts of stuff on that wanted poster. We could put, as you just said, cancer markers on the wanted poster. Um, I interviewed the, the, the founders a, a few months ago, and they said they have found in their early trials, and this is definitely for, it's going to take them longer, I think, to, de to develop cancer vaccines that are really effective than it did for them to create a coronavirus vaccine for COVID. Um, but they say essentially what we found is that if you have cancer and it is taken out from surgery, we can basically do a study on that cancer that looks at the proteins that are identified, that, that, are, that are identifiable on that, on that cancer. And we can develop a personalized vaccine that we give to you that has that cancer's markers in the wanted poster such that when that cancer might start to grow back, aha, you are vaccinated against it. You are beating up that cancer and its markers right at the door of the saloon. Is is that does that more or less jive with with what you've understood to be the the how how the science works in sort of a metaphorical way? Yeah, absolutely. That that that's exactly that's exactly right. And I think also like the speed with which we were able to make these vaccines to bring it back to what we were talking about earlier, like that is uh, evidence for the complacency theory. Because like the pandemic was like, we were the one thing we were not complacent about was we're going to get these vaccines going. We're going to have Operation warp, spe warp Speed and so on. And so when we try, we can get progress going really fast. I, I, that's a good point. Again, and a good callback to the theory that I think, you know, it's, I think a lot of these problems are hard. I think, you know, curing cancer, uh, it, look, Cancer is not one thing. Cancer is like 3,000 different things, 30,000 different things. So curing cancer is not one problem like inventing a one light bulb. That said, I think you're totally right that there is a certain kind of focusing mechanism that a crisis can deliver to a society that forces them to do one thing, that forces them to do a, a thing. And clearly COVID forced us to accelerate 
mRNA technology and all sorts of technologies to inoculate against COVID. And we can similarly adopt a focusing mechanism in the absence of a pandemic by just choosing to focus on things. I, I, I think I'm with you there. Um, I want to move from mRNA technology to another part of the protein space, which is that in late 2020, there was a huge breakthrough at Google's AI project DeepMind, which uh, basically launched us several years into the future in terms of our ability to, to look at what proteins actually look like. Tell us a little bit about Google's breakthrough and walk us through how it might translate into medicine in the next 10 or 20 years. Yeah, so this is a problem that was has been around since the 1970s. It was actually brought up in a in a Nobel Prize address in the 1970s. Was we know that proteins have a linear amino acid sequence, and we know that they're 3D structures. If we know, it's pretty easy to determine what the what the linear uh, arrangement of amino acids is. Like, but sh should we be able to predict based on that linear sequence? You know what the the 3D structure is and what the function therefore is, right? And 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 so that has actually, like, you know, in the 1970s when this was proposed, it was thought like, okay, this isn't going to be like that hard to do. And it's just, we, we tried and tried and tried and no matter the amount of compute that we threw at it, it was, it was really hard. And what, what um, this uh, alphabet lab called DeepMind uh, was able to do is they, they just, um, they put a ton of uh, machine learning into sort of the algorithm for figuring out how these things fold and they can, they basically solved the problem. I mean, like, with, came very, very close anyway to like perfect solution uh, of of how how you solve uh, the problem of predicting the 3D structure of a protein based on its linear sequence. Yeah. So, so what does that mean? Right. Okay. So we we have a we have a machine learning algorithm owned by Google that can predict essentially the structure of every protein that exists. So what? What do we do yeah. with that? So so what it means, I mean, so the, the simplest thing is like, well, we can we can now target drugs at those proteins, right? So actually like, like we, we have some, um, I think about a quarter of the sort of proteins that are relevant to humans have been sort of, uh, uh, the shape has been determined experimentally, right? And so so being able, like knowing their shapes can help us like target uh, using 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 drugs, we can figure out which drugs might be good targets for those to inhibit or activate uh, those proteins, right? So, um, so, so that's like one simple and like sort of drug design, drug discovery, and and pharmaceutical companies have their own databases of of some of these, but they're all like private, right? And so, like this would enable us to maybe like create like an open source database of like all of the proteins uh, and what they're. Can, can I can I try an, an, another metaphor and and you tell me how far you think this metaphor is from reality? I'm sure it's a certain distance from reality, but I want you to tell me how far. So like understanding the shape of proteins in a way that is perfect, and we're not there yet, but understanding the shape of all proteins in a way that is perfect is kind of like understanding what every lock looks like on the inside if we wanna break into every house in the world. If we somehow had like X-ray vision into the shape of every single lock, and we had a key master, okay, then we now have access to every single door and every single vault and every single house in the world. And if we understand the shape of proteins and we understand how using 
synthetic mRNA and other RNA technology can be used to essentially lock with or lock onto or recreate these proteins, it's a little bit like we can break into all sorts of bodily functions. So if we recognize that there are proteins related to cancer, we can begin to cure those cancers. If we recognize that there are proteins related to schizophrenia or Alzheimer's, we can develop biological keys to solve those problems. That essentially this technology optimistically could be a, this, this kind of X-ray vision into all the biological locks that exist. How, how, like how, how completely nuts is that? That's not too far off, right? I think the one thing that's a little different is that like we, we I think even if we could do this perfectly, like we can at best, um, we can activate and inhibit any protein we want, right? Which is, which is, which is huge. We still don't know how all the, how all the protein, like how the whole system interacts. Right. So it's, so it's like a little bit more complicated. It's like, okay, if you open this lock, then another lock, something else happens. Right. So, so it's all, there's so many interdependencies in the human body. Um, but, but it is like a huge piece of it. Right. We're going to, we're going to, I think we're going to discover a ton of drugs, uh, in, in, in the, in, in the next, you know, no, you're right. I actually, I mean, I, I just, I just streamed all of the, all of the Harry Potter movies over my holiday break. And I'm trying to imagine a room where every single time you open one door, five other doors close. Like you're right. That's more how the human body operates. Like nothing is, is there's very few important things that are just one protein or just one gene. Almost everything is a sort of complex dance between different proteins, different genetic expressions. I think that's, that's uh that's good. And, and thank you for reminding me of, of my Harry Potter binge. Um, I wanted to, to move to what I think is one of the most important technologies in the world, and some people are going to be like, well, <laughs> you've, you've talked about a lot of important technologies, but I, I honestly think this might be, this is, this is arguably the most important of the next decade, and it's carbon capture. The ability to build facilities, build plants that act like super trees, that do the work of a, milli, of a one million tree forest, suck carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, and somehow store it. Talk to me a little bit about where you think we are with carbon capture technology and what it will take to scale it. Yeah, so I think it's an extremely promising technology. I think it will work. I think we've, you know, basically where we are right now is like we can reliably take carbon out of the atmosphere for like hundreds of dollars uh, a ton, uh, you know, at sort of like small scales. And basically what we need to do is get it down to like a cost like below like $50 a ton. And at the gigaton scale, or maybe even the 10 gigaton scale, right? Uh, so that's like how you solve, uh, you know, the last, the, the really hard bits of decarbonization that we're probably not going to be able to like directly solve. Like you, you need like 10 gigaton scale uh, carbon capture to be able to do that. Um, you know, it, I think actually like carbon removal is maybe the better term, right? Because because um, you don't always need to like capture the CO2. Um, so I think actually like, and to my mind, the most promising methods um, are either mineralization or ocean acidification or de uh, uh, alkalinization. Um, and those are. Two... You're definitely going to have to unpack those yeah. isations because uh, I'm not that. exactly yeah. sure what they are. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, um, so, I mean, those are the most promising ways. And those are, those are forms where you don't actually capture the carbon, but you remove carbon from the atmosphere, but you don't, you don't actually hold on to the carbon atom. So, um, in, in carbon mineralization, what you do is you take a uh, an abundant rock that's already in the uh, in in uh, the Earth's uh, crust on the surface, 
usually sometimes in the mantle is actually where it is. And so there's only a few places where it's like raised up to the surface. Um, uh, so the, the most common one that's, that's talked about is called olivine and it makes up 50% of the upper mantle. So it's like huge and abundant. Um, and you, if you expose it to, uh, air and water, uh, it will capture the CO2 out of the, out of the atmosphere and it will take that carbon atom and, and, uh, Put, uh, fix it into a bicarbonate ion or a carbonate or a bicarbonate ion, right? Which, which is a lower energy state uh, than CO2. So once it gets there, it's safe. It's not ever going back into the atmosphere, you know, for, for hundreds of millions of years. And, and it's a super simple reaction, right? It was like rock, air, water. That's it. That's all you need. Now there, there's some challenges around like a crust that builds up over the rock, right? But this process has been happening for, you know, billions of years. Um, the volcanoes, right? Emit uh, greenhouse gases, uh, car- carbon, di- carbon dioxide, um, when they erupt. And if, if this process weren't already at play at a small scale, like earth would have already turned into Venus. Um, so this is already happening. Uh, we just need to like accelerate it. And so this is called enhanced weathering if you, if you accelerate the process. Um, and so, so figuring out how to, how to accelerate that process, um, to me is, is a really promising way for carbon dioxide remo- removal. And then the other way is, um, just changing the acidity level of the ocean, right? So if you could, if you could take acid out of the ocean, right, or or dump uh, a base into the ocean at a small scale, right, not not enough to kill anything. Um, <laughs> if you could do that, that changes the um, the atmospheric to ocean concentration gradient of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide, if you make it more, if you make the ocean more alkaline, less acidic, like carbon dioxide will flow from the atmosphere to the ocean, to the ocean. And it will, you know, will, will, uh, get in there and it will become carbonic acid and, um, it will sort of be in equilibrium again. Um, so you can remove CO2 out of the atmosphere that way. So I can imagine some people listening to this, they're like, okay, taking acid out of the ocean, sucking carbon dioxide out of the sky. Uh, this sounds a little, this sounds rather futuristic. It sounds rather science fiction. How close are we to doing these things at any sort of meaningful scale? I think it's, you know, this is all still like in the experimental phase, but I, I think one, one thing that I, I like about these technologies is that there's no like technological barrier. There's nothing we have to really invent to make this work. Like we, like cheap energy helps a lot um, in terms of, uh, you know, we might want to use some electrical process to separate the, the acid from the ocean water. Right. Uh, so, so like getting the electricity costs down helps, um, getting other energy costs for transporting this rock, right. Like, like the, the, that we might want to crush up and, and contact with, with, with water and air, right. Getting those energy costs down, like that's important. Um, getting, getting anything to scale, that's going to be super hard, but I don't think that there's any new technology that you need to do these things. It's just, again, it's like, we just need to kind of choose to do it. Right. Um, very last question. Uh, we talked about, God, flying cars, supersonic planes, uh, synthetic mRNA, uh, machine learning protein design, carbon capture, detalinization. Um, what is the technology that I have not asked you about that you are most excited about for the next 10 to 20 years? The thing I've been looking into more and more is uh, atomically precise manufacturing. So this is what was originally uh, referred to as uh, nanotechnology before the term got co-opted. So um, if you think about all the advances that we've had 
in society from like increasing levels of precision in manufacturing. Uh, they've been huge, right? You couldn't have had the steam engine without improvements in in precision, right? What if we take that to like the the logical extreme, right? What if we get ever more precise in the way we manufacture? Like, what new things can we can we invent there? So that's like kind of what what I've been uh, noodling on for the last uh, last couple months. Can you tell me one new thing that we might be able to invent with extreme sort of nanotechnology? I think like super efficient engines. Like, what if we could what if we, what if we could turn uh, you know, uh, a fuel into useful work, like with like 90% efficiency instead of like, you know, 30% efficiency. Awesome stuff. Eli Dorado, thank you so, so much. I appreciate it. Great to be with you. Plain English with Derek Thompson is produced by Devin Manzi. If you like what you hear, please follow, rate, and review us. New episode drops on Tuesday. Have a great weekend. Uh-huh.